This is Chris Masterjohn, and you're listening to episode 19 of The Daily Lipid. This is The Daily Lipid Podcast with Chris Masterjohn. Health and nutrition news you can use on the daily. Are, are, are you ready? This episode is another Facebook Live episode. This was my fifth Facebook Live event. And this one, like the first one, was entitled Ask Chris Master John PhD Anything About Health, Fitness, or Nutrition. So this was a free-for-all like the first episode. And we go through a lot of different types of questions. We go through questions on how we can tie together bruising easily spider veins and cellulite. Should we be thinking about collagen, vitamin C, vitamin K? How should we be thinking about that? How should we be dealing with autoimmune diseases? What supplements should people take? Should What about food combining? Like, Should we eat fruit together with protein? How do we interpret LP little a and heart disease? And how do we derive practical implications from that? What about oral allergy syndrome? What do we do post-surgery? How do we balance the microbiome in terms of balancing fungi and bacteria? Are we trying to get one or the other or both? And how conservative should we be about antibiotics versus antifungals? Does it matter whether they're natural antifungals or synthetic ones? Uh, you know, How should we interpret the research? A lot about the microbiome in this episode. Um, we talk about uh, a little bit about heart disease. We talk about deep frying. We talk about what are good snack foods. What should we use in general for vitamin and mineral testing? What about physical activity during pregnancy? We talk about in that context and in quite a few others, we talk about stress in the context of pregnancy, exercise, and other contexts. How do you know when you're managing that stress burden well? And quite a few other things. So it is quite a grab bag to go into. Before getting into the full episode, I have a few announcements to make. Uh, first of all, this is the Daily Lipid Podcast, and the home to all of my content is chrismasterjohnphd.com. If you want to get all of the podcast show notes, you can go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast. And if you want the one for this episode, since this is episode 19, you can go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash 19 to get the show notes. On the show notes pages, I now have for the first eight episodes, I have transcripts that were generously provided by Cassandra Barnes. And if you go to any of those episodes, you will see under the streaming button, you will see the button to click to get the transcripts. If you only want one transcript, all you have to do is enter your email address and wait for the download link to come to you by email. It'll happen pretty quickly. If you want access to all of the transcripts, what you do is, in addition to that email, you will get a confirmation email to the transcript list, and you confirm your subscription to that list, and you will automatically get an email that contains links to the downloads for all of the available pod, all eight available podcast transcripts. And then you will also be on a list where you will automatically get emailed each transcript as it comes out. I should also have a transcript for this episode. So I'll be missing 9 through 18, uh, at least for the time being. But if you go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash 19, there you can also get the transcript for this episode. 
I also have a new newsletter that came out. If you go to my homepage, you will see the button to join that newsletter. In that newsletter, I will be giving you exclusive content that you can't get anywhere else. You'll get welcomed to the newsletter with a series of a few emails over the course of a few days where I will be introducing you to this phase of my career, what I'm trying to accomplish on a personal and practical level, what I'm trying to do with the website that makes it easier for you to use, the upcoming projects I have, and so on. And uh, after that, I will email you once a week with a brief insight of the week that relates to the core of my content on my website and that I'm working on, the, you know, the reasons that you value my stuff. I will make it brief. I will make it regular, but I will only make it once a week. And then intermittently, I will also email you on that list whenever something time sensitive comes up. So if I have a Facebook Live episode coming up, I'll email you about that. If I have some new major project, I'll email you about that. But I won't email you about um, all of my content, only if something special or epic comes up. If you do want all of my content coming by email, then what you should do is subscribe to my RSS feed. You can do that in RSS Reader. You can also do it by email if you just look for the form on my website. Um, on the desktop, if you haven't subscribed, it should hit you when you try to leave. Um, and then on the mobile, when you scroll uh, partway down. But it's uh, I put that form there so you can easily see it. But if you're subscribed to it, you shouldn't see the form. And if you exit out, you shouldn't see it for another couple of weeks because I don't, I don't want... Uh, I want these to be opportunities, but I don't, and I want people to be aware of them, but I don't want to disturb the user experience. But that's what you should be on if you want all of my content. All right, without further ado, here is the full episode. Sean says, what might a collection of these symptoms, bruising easily, spider veins, and cellulite, suggest about a woman's deficiencies and or genetics? These issues present in mother and grandmother in regards to those things. Would supplementation with collagen, vitamin C, and bioflavonoids help? I think it could relate to uh, collagen synthesis, vitamin, and I don't know about bioflavonoids, but vitamin C, meaning ascorbic acid, would probably help. Of course, you should always start with a vitamin C-rich diet, so fresh fruits and vegetables. You can get small amounts from organ meats, especially liver, but, well, especially pituitary and adrenal glands, but that's not going to happen. Uh, but, you know, in the main, uh, I would say lots of fresh fruits and vegetables would be helpful there. I would say, the Sean, the one thing that I think you're overlooking there is vitamin K, particularly vitamin K2. There is some evidence that spider veins um, are related to vitamin K. And the, the thing that you have to keep in mind here is that on the one hand, um, and you know what, uh, so vitamin C deficiency actually, and if it's a deficiency in collagen defects, Technically, it's not bruising, but you wind up what you wind up getting is things that look. They have a different technical name, but they basically it looks like bruising to anyone. Uh, but the but it wouldn't have the typical explanation for bruising. So you shouldn't have to get whack. You shouldn't have to whack your leg into something for your leg to develop what looks like a bruise if you're deficient in vitamin C. I would say that yeah, probably most people could use more dietary vitamin C. But probably in the general population, it's more common to have suboptimal vitamin K intakes. And it could be lack of vitamin K in general, uh, it causing some sort of defect in clotting regulation. But much more likely, 
in these cases, I think it's deficiency of vitamin K2, primarily vitamin K2, which is the form of vitamin K that's going to reach the blood vessels. And uh, in that case, you have a defect in protecting the blood vessels from protect uh, from calcification, and that makes them more fragile and uh, less elastic and causes a number of problems like that. It's been a while since I looked at this, and since spider veins and cellulite were never central in the kind of things that I was looking at, it's mostly things that I just came across in the literature while I was researching vitamin K, but I'm pretty sure that there is a body of literature out there connecting vitamin K and polymorphisms that relate to vitamin K metabolism to that. Uh, one thing that I can't answer for sure right now, but hope to do in the future is uh, I do want to publish a blog post and an associated YouTube video on polymorphisms in vitamin K metabolism. The principal one would be a, a poor recycling of vitamin K, which would be a mutation in vitamin K epoxide oxidoreductase or VCOR, which is the enzyme that recycles vitamin K. I have that in a mild case. Um, so it's interesting to me, and I did I did mention it in previous episodes, and some people asked me follow-up questions about it. So I can't promise when I will do this. Hopefully it's sooner rather than later, but I will try to make a YouTube video about how to figure out your own vitamin K-related genetics and associated blog posts about what that might mean. And since you bring it up, I'll, I'll try to see what I can fit in about spider veins and cellulite and, and see if I can better develop those connections. All right, not a definitive answer, but I hope that starts you off in some useful directions. Thank you, Sean, for your question. Samir Ahmed says autoimmune cure. Um, Samir, that's sort of a great question, except that it's not really specific. So I can't really give a very specific answer to it. Um, you know, their autoimmune conditions are a very broad collection of diseases that could be very different in origin. So, I mean, there are probably some commonalities in general defects in the immune system. And in that case, I would say uh, you know, the fat-soluble vitamins, particular vitamins A and D, are important in balance, not just one or the other, but they're important together to regulate immune function. And I do think that there's some at least preliminary evidence that not getting enough vitamin A or D um, probably predisposes both to poor immune function in terms of its ability to combat pathogens, but also poor immune function in terms of its, uh, in terms of predisposing to autoimmune disorders. So I think that comes into play. I do think that probably taking anti-inflammatory drugs is the principal cause of chronic low-grade inflammation. That probably plays a role. Um, I, I could go into that at a later point if people have follow-up questions. I would say that quite often there are tissue-specific things going on. So for example, in Hashimoto's disease, that's an autoimmune condition. I do think that there's pretty good evidence that a deficiency in the antioxidant network in the thyroid gland is playing a role there. That, But you know, these are all, once you get into a specific disease, you have to move beyond the generalities and you get into, uh, you know, just very, very things that are very specific to those tissues and of course to that person. So um, it's a general question. That's a general answer. Thank you, Samira. And um, thank you for your question. 
David says, what supplements should a general person take? Uh, <laughs> that's another very broad question. Um, there is no supplements that a general person should take. In general, people should eat better diets and people should have better lifestyles. And you you can't fix, it's, I won't say you can't, but it's a very bad idea to try to fix a bad diet and bad lifestyle with supplementation. So the, what you should start with is getting an understanding of nutrient-dense foods, select out some of the most nutrient-dense foods. I would say the neglected food groups are organ meats and collagenous tissues. I think both of those things should be food groups. And, you know, I mean, you know, we should be going down the list and saying, you know, have I eaten organ meats this week? Have I gotten collagenous tissues like bone broths or ed soft edible bones from, uh, you know, whatever sources, whether it's canned salmon or, you know, the exoskeletons of insects. Have I managed to get those things into my diet? Most people haven't. So that's one place to start. Uh, have I, you know, how much refined and processed food have I eaten this week? How much unrefined food have I eaten this week? And how much have I, how much of it is homemade? How much of it was processed in bad ways? try to work on bringing that ratio towards whole foods and towards uh, traditionally home-cooked meals. Um, one of the things that I try to do is, you know, I'm, I'm at least as busy as the next person. One, one of the things that I try to do is make home-cooked meals in large batches so I don't have to do that much work during the week and I can just reheat a lot of things. I understand that people are super busy, but I really do think that preparing the bulk of your food at home, or if you're lucky enough, having someone else do that for you is going to go a long way. I mean, just making that one change for someone who mostly eats out will go a long, long, long way towards better health, better body composition, and all of those things. Uh, if you are on a very restrictive diet, you best be micromanaging it and learning about where you get nutrients. If you're going to eat from a very broad variety of animal and plant foods, most of the time you can probably ignore most of those things. And that becomes all the more true if you're selecting from the most nutrient-dense animal foods like uh, shellfish, organ meats, egg yolks, uh I would say, you know, really high quality dairy and or bones uh, would, those would be the main ones to look at. The broader your diet is and the, and if you can get those super nutrient dense foods up to 20 or 30% of your diet, you probably don't need to micromanage. The further you get away from that, the more you should be educating yourself about what nutrients come from where. If you are severely restricting carbohydrate, if you are cutting out dairy, grains, legumes, eggs, and, you know, food group after food group, you need to be micromanaging your diet and understanding where nutrients come from, or you need to have someone do that for you. So if you're going to be on a really restrictive diet, get a really good, you know, either get a good web app that can manage uh, that where you can log your food at least for, you know, for a few days or a week and see if you're meeting basic adequacy in the micronutrients or hire the, you know, a dietitian or a nutritional consultant to look over your diet and see if that's happening. Uh, that is where you should start. Should you supplement? I mean, I take supplements. If you want to, if you want to see what I take for supplements and why, 
Go to chrismasterjohnphd.com, click on about, and you right there on the front page, you'll see nutritional supplements I take. You will also see that the reasons that I give for those nutritional supplements are not because I think everybody should be taking them, but because I think I should be taking them. And that's because after my best efforts at a nutrient-dense diet, I have found that I still have, you know, I still have symptoms related to X or, uh, you know, or I try to eat a nutrient-dense diet, but I'm not perfect. And whenever I fall from a nutrient-dense diet, I have symptoms related to X. I can back that up with blood tests related to X. I have a strong rationale for taking those supplements. And that's going to be different for every person. You know, in my particular case, I don't feel like I need to supplement with vitamin D, but I seem to need a real lot of vitamin A. And there are other people who seem to have the exact opposite case of that. So I think it's a bad idea to just tell, you know, say everyone should be taking X number of supplements. If you're going to do that, take like empty your wallet out and take them all so you don't wind up with any major imbalances. All right. Thank you, David, for your question. Uh, Robert Rodriguez says, does eating fruit together with protein affect protein absorption? If so, is this true for all fruits, bananas, avocados, etc.? Robert, I may, this may just be a deficiency in my understanding, but I don't know of any particular reason to think that eating fruit has a major effect on protein absorption. I would be surprised if that was the case sans some particular gastrointestinal problem. But I mean, it's certainly the case that if someone has uh, hereditary fructose malabsorption and eating fructose causes severe gastrointestinal distress, obviously that's going to interfere with the absorption of everything. So if you're eating foods that you don't tolerate digestively, and you should, I mean, just paying attention to how you react to foods and maybe keeping a food log should be able to help you figure that out, at least 70 or 80% of that out without the help of an expert, provided you are aware that gastrointestinal results of things often are delayed several hours. So if you understand that awareness and you can, and you can look over the course of a day, how do these variables play out? Um, then you can do a pretty good preliminary job identifying what you don't tolerate digestively. And if fruit is one of those things, then fruit is probably going to cause you malabsorption across the board, including protein. But if you know fruit is not one of those things and you don't digest lactose very well, then milk products are probably going to be true you know, across the board. So I don't, I don't really buy into food combining as a as a sort of general list of everyone should eat this food with that food, but not eat that food with that food. I don't buy into it at all in that sense, but I think that it's totally true that there may be many cases on an individual level where people find that they don't tolerate eating one thing with another thing. And, um, you know, so for example, I believe that Denise Minger on her blog some years ago wrote a post about why she can't eat fruit with fat. And that, and it's probably not particularly or only true of her. It's probably true of a lot of people. I know for me, there are some, you know, there are particular foods that are rich in things that 
I don't really tolerate very well. So like berries and cinnamon and things like that. And some of those compounds are fat soluble. So if I'm eating a real lot of berries and I'm always eating them with yogurt or something that increases the solubility of the compounds that irritate, in my case, it irritates the inside lining of my mouth. Then yeah, if, you know, eating all those, all those, uh, strong tasting pungent fruits and, uh, and, and other aromatic oils and stuff like that, like cinnamon seems to be the, the worst offender. Then for me, you know, that's, that's true. But I think that's something that you really need to pay attention on an individual level. If you don't feel gastric distress in any way associated with eating fruit with protein, I, I strongly suspect it's a waste of your time to, investigate it much further than that because I don't think that's true as a general rule. Thank you, Robert, for your question. Matthew Hoff says, Chris, what are your thoughts on the Randall cycle and its relevance? Does it make sense to actively try to keep free fatty acids low via a lower fat diet, especially during a caloric a caloric deficit? Thanks. All right. So um, to the best of my memory from when I had investigated this, the Randall, and someone can correct me if I'm mistaking it, but the correct, the Randall cycle is basically one of the pathways by which free fatty acids can interfere with glucose metabolism. From what I saw, you know, the specific details of the Randall cycle were kind of well demonstrated to exist as a general principle, but different tissues, they were more or less relevant and so on. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, it's you know, you're, you have a certain level of energy expenditure and you have a certain level of energy intake and your body is not going to run competing fuels beyond the capacity to, to use that total energy supply. And I think that on an academic level or in trying to really understand the physiology, it's really useful to look at things like what is the biochemical pathway by which one fuel might outcompete another fuel. But I don't think that it has, I don't think that it has any kind of practical dietary implication for most people beyond the fact that, beyond the fact, I, I mean, I really think that for the average person, mostly what they need to be concerned with is energy balance. And uh, so, I mean, let's talk about it in a little bit more detail. So if let's say you're in the absence of stress and you are just going through a normal fasting feeding cycle and you have some given macronutrient composition in your diet, it is generally the case that carbohydrates will be preferentially burned for energy. And, you know, if you hate carbohydrates, you will say, aha, this is because carbohydrates are toxic and the body wants to get rid of them. And if you love carbohydrates, you will say, aha, this is because carbohydrates are awesome and the body just only uses fat when it needs to and it just loves burning these carbohydrates. So that's what it prefers. Um, or, you know, if you don't really love or hate them, one of the things that you might point out is that our bodies have a very limited capacity to store glycogen because it soaks up a lot of water, 
Fat is e easily stackable. It fits into a very small compartment. Glycogen is highly branched. It absorbs a lot of water weight, so it's voluminous, wet, heavy. And if we stored most of our fuel as carbohydrate, we would be walking around like water balloons. I don't think you would call it walking. You would call it wobbling. And so it is generally has to be the case, I think, that just because of that, and I'm not saying there aren't other reasons, but just because of that, the body is going to prefer to burn carbohydrate for energy, of course, because if you, I mean, say you're eating 2000 calories a day, you're on this, uh, you must be on a diet in this case, but say you're on 2000 calories a day or kilocalories if you want to be technical and you are consuming a thousand calories of carbohydrate and a thousand calories of fat. It's 50-50. Let's ignore protein for easy math. Um, you, I mean, you're only going to store, uh, you could like, if you just store, if you just pre were preferentially storing all the carbohydrate, um, actually let's say you're on a hypercaloric diet. So you have, this is your excess of calories. It's half carbohydrate, half fat. And you need to always uh, burn the fat instead of the carbohydrate. So you're always storing the carbohydrate two or three days and you're going to run out of room to store the carbohydrate. So for that reason alone, you would preferentially burn the carbohydrate for energy. Now, maybe it's the case that carbohydrates toxic and you want to get rid of it. Or maybe it's the case that carbohydrates so awesome that that's why you prefer to burn it for fuel. It doesn't matter. Let's just avoid the, the value judgments and the interpretation and look at how this would play out in the absence of stress in a normal mixed diet. You would consume a certain amount of fat and a certain amount of carbohydrate. And to in proportion to the carbohydrate, you're going to get more insulin signaling. And that insulin signaling is in proportion to that amount of carbohydrate going to cause insulin to store the fat in adipose tissue. So eating the fat doesn't cause the rise of free fatty acids because the carbohydrate suppresses it. But if you're on a lower carbohydrate diet, then you will have less insulin and you will have more circulating free fatty acids and you will preferentially burn the fat for energy because the carbohydrate wasn't there. Uh, but, you know, and, but like, so what if those free fatty acids are going to inhibit the burning of carbohydrate? They're only going to do so in proportion to the degree that carbohydrate wasn't there in the first place to burn for energy. So I really don't think that this concept that, the release of free fatty acids can inhibit burning carbohydrate for energy. In the average person in a stress-free environment eating a mixed diet, I don't think it has really any relevance for the dietary composition because that you will only release those free fatty acids to burn for energy if carbohydrate isn't there. And so who cares if they're competing for carbohydrate that isn't there to burn for energy? It's just, uh, it's sort of like, it's, uh, it doesn't wind up having any practical relevance. Now, where it has practical relevance is suppose that you have uh, a high stress environment and we could read carbohydrate restriction as something that could go into that stress bucket. We could read fasting as something that could go into that stress bucket. We could read exercise as something that goes into that stress bucket. And there are different responses to each stressor. So we're simplifying a bit by saying, by saying this all goes into a stress bucket. But in general, you can imagine all of these things 
going into one bucket and the more stress you have, the more significant this impact is. Or maybe you don't have multiple stressors, you're at rest and whatever, whatever, but you know, some utterly terrifying event has fallen upon you. And so that one thing is pushing you into the stress-related zone. Well, ultimately, yeah, I think, you know, you're going to have an enormous stress response that's going to release free fatty acids um, into the blood and you're going to have a rise in blood sugar. And it's, it's probably the case that part of the rise in blood sugar is going to be to overcome the competitive effect of fatty acids because your goal in the stress response is to redistribute the blood supply to the brain and to the skeletal muscle. If you imagine the traditional fight or flight response, you need the brain to have this very acute sense of how to react and you need the skeletal muscle to have this intense ability to contract to to either run away from the predator or to, to fight whatever the challenge is. And so you're redirecting blood supply away from all these other tissues and you're trying to elevate free fatty acids and glucose so you can drive all that fuel into those cells that need it. Because you all, because the stress response is also antagonizing insulin, which normally brings things into cells. The free fatty acids are going to, are in all things being equal, the free fatty acids will inhibit glucose uptake insulin's being antagonized anyway, which is needed for glucose uptake. So, you know, the body, the body takes that into account and pushes blood glucose up really high to help drive it into cells. But the overall goal of that process is to redirect energy to specific tissues that need it in that moment and drive as much energy as possible into those tissues. So even in that case, does it have that much dietary relevance? I don't think so because you know, if you look at the Randall cycle, as as much as I understand it, and again, people can correct me if my biochemistry is a little bit off, but I think when you're looking at the at the concept of high free fatty acids being able to inhibit glucose metabolism, it's always occurring in the context of a broader physiological picture where hormones and the nervous system control is controlling what goes where and making it go to those places that where it belongs and the and so it the body's regulatory system knows that those lower level chemical effects are are there right all of the body's regulation is laid on top of chemistry and physics and all this stuff and it's a higher level operation that is Either it's controlling things below or it's acknowledging things below, right? So our body can't control the second law of thermodynamics, but our body's regulatory system evolved within the context of the second law of thermodynamics. And so, you know, we could, if we want to impute understanding of the body, we would say the regulatory system knows about the laws of thermodynamics and take takes them into account. It's regulate its regulation is built on top of those lower level concepts. So in general, I really don't think that you can infer dietary pra- uh, practical dietary implications from such a lower level concept like that. Now, I will say you're asking, you know, are there reasons to keep fat low? Um, you know, honestly, I think that it depends on context. So I've said before, I restricted fat when I was in a caloric deficit, but the reason that I restricted fat wasn't 
so that I could lose weight and it wasn't so that I could accommodate the Randall cycle. The reason that I was restricting fat was because I had to cut my calories to lose body fat. And that, if I wanted to maintain lean mass to the degree possible, that had to either come from fat or carbohydrate. If I was relatively sedentary or I was doing most of my my exercises walking, I probably wouldn't have cared that much whether it was coming from fat or carbohydrate. And in fact, I tracked my calories through that whole time and I still track my calories and and I only, for the most part, I only look at total calories and protein. I'll adjust my carbohydrate based on symptomology, but I don't really, I have the data in my fitness pal on fat and cal- and uh, fat and carbohydrate intake. The only times I've ever looked at it is when people on social media have asked me what my fat, uh, have asked me what my fat per, the only time I've ever looked at it is when people ask me what my fat and carbohydrate macro percentages were. So I, I, in my particular case, to fuel my workouts because the workouts that I were doing were high intensity, running on glycolytic, using up my muscular glycogen. In my case, it was important for me to support that carbohydrate demand in order to avoid the symptoms of high stress hormones. But for the average person, I think what you should do is not so much rely on the biochemical theory. If you want to understand the theory, that's fantastic. I do it all the time. But on a practical level, your your dietary decisions on, for macros shouldn't be based so much on the theory. I mean, you should you should get the advice or the information from someone who think who seems to know what they're talking about in terms of theory, who can translate into practical implications. But then you use that as a starting place to. To, and then you tweak it based on your symptomology and your body's response. In my case, I calculated what what kind of calories I would need to eat to lose fat. One source told me 1,900 calories. The other source told me 2,500 calories. And so I started with 1,900 calories and I got reliable insomnia. I titrated it up to the point where I was still losing weight, but I was sleeping fine every night. And I, you know, that is what I would do. And I think what, what you should do is or what other people should do is basically as a general principle, do exactly the same thing. You know, start from a reasonable theory point about macros, but then see how you feel and how your body responds and adjust them accordingly. And, um, and that, again, that is for the person who wants practical advice. The person who wants to understand biochemistry, read everything you can find about the Randall cycle in biochemistry. All right. Thank you, Matthew, for your question. It was a great question. Eric Hinckley says, questions about elevated LP little a. Number one, how much of a role does a low-fat and or vegan diet play? In other words, should I avoid things like meat, eggs, organ meat, shellfish, and coconut oil? Did you just purposefully list all the most nutritious foods in that one category? Number two, is it important for me to keep my LDLC below 80? Eric, I'm going to tell you right now that there are guidelines put out by the National Cholesterol Education uh, Program, committee? I'm running a blank. Um, And my opinion differs from theirs. So my opinion is my opinion. It's not medical advice. It's based on my expertise and my understanding of these things. But, um, but, you know, don't, don't take what I say as a means of contradicting the general recommendations uh, or your doctor without taking that own responsibility upon yourself and working it out with a knowledgeable 
healthcare practitioner who you um, who you really trust and whose approach you value. So I would say, first of all, if you have elevated, elevated LP little a, you want to find out if it is related to diet or genes. In my opinion, from what I've seen, the physiological function of LP little a is to help clean up oxidized phospholipids from the membrane of LDL particles. And there are some people who believe that LP little a is pro-inflammatory and pro-clotting. There is good reason to think that that's not the case. There's evidence against that. And if you look into the literature, you'll find it in the show notes. I will post two things that I have written on LP little a. Uh, at least uh, one of them is, I believe one of them, I believe the two things that I have written out there are my review of Mal- Malcolm Kendrick's book, The Great Cholesterol Con not to be confused with Anthony Colpo's book of the same name, although I reviewed both of those. And also, uh, I believe I have a section on LP little a in my article, uh, High Cholesterol Causes Heart Disease, Myth or Truth, that I wrote some years ago on cholesterolandhealth.com. I'll put links to those in the show notes. But in summary, I believe the evidence suggests that LP little a, its physiological function is to help mop up phospholipids from the membranes of LDL particles. And the reason that it's associated with heart disease is because as you have more LDL oxidation, which is incredibly well established as the principal cause of atherosclerosis, when you have elevated LDL oxidation, your body makes more LP little a to try to clean it up. And what you'll see is that if you actually take LP little a out of people's blood and you analyze you know, what's going on there chemically, it all seems to be stuck to LDL particles and seems to be sort of vacuuming up the oxidized phospholipids. And so um, if you don't know what, if you know what phospholipids are, great. If you don't know what phospholipids are, you can kind of gloss over it and just imagine that LDL particles are what's carrying cholesterol in the blood and they can get damaged, right? So when they are damaged, LP little a is coming to try to mop up that damage and clean it up. And if that's the case, then it would seem to suggest that LP little a is associated with heart disease because it's a reaction to LDL oxidation and that it's fulfilling a protective function. If that's the case, then it makes zero sense to modify directly the LP little a. I mean, to take it to an absurd level, what if we had some kind of drug or antibody that could specifically go into your blood, do nothing else except to get rid of all the LP little a? Would that help you? Or would that mean that you have more damaged LDL particles in the blood that aren't being cleaned up and harm you, right? So, um, that is why it is indefensibly foolish, and I'm not saying you're foolish. I'm, this is my criticism of the general approach to interpretation of scientific literature, literature out there. It is indefensibly foolish to look at statistical correlations between these blood markers and heart disease and assume in the absence of mechanistic cause and effect evidence whether modifying those things will help, harm, or do nothing. And you can't take a multifactorial intervention that does something to that and does other things and just say, well, it did, you know, it did that one thing. That's mechanistic evidence that this causes heart disease, right? That's, um, 
that that's ridiculous. We have really, really, really strong evidence. I would say, and I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. I think one of the most well-supported theories of cause and effect in all of biology that has any relevance to health impact is that LDL oxidation and poor rates of LDL metabolism in the blood are the main contributors to the initial development of atherosclerosis and its, uh, I would say, to the initial development of atherosclerosis. We absolutely do not have clarity on that matter for LP little a, and we have good reason to lean in the direction of thinking that LP little a itself is probably playing some protective role, but it's probably indicating when it's high that the that something bad is going on, like you have high rates of LDL oxidation. The problem with this is that it's very well known that one of the reasons for high LP little a is that a large number of people have uh, have basically the on switch for the LP little a gene is turned on into ramped up high gear because of their genetics. And actually, a, a better analogy would just be that you should only have like a one or, or a few on switches. And some people are just born with dozens and dozens of on switches. And so when any signal switches them, them on, they get really, 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 really on. And if that's the case, then what if in those people, LP little a is not a marker of LDL oxidation? And if, LDL, if, the, and if LP little a is concerning because it's a marker of LDL oxidation, but in some people it's not, then why in those people should we be concerned at all? I mean, maybe we should be, but it is, it is, uh, it's just grossly oversimplistic to just assume that, oh, LP little a is bad and, uh, and, you know, HDL is good, LDL is bad, the, you know, this is good, LP little a is bad. You know, when we get into this, I mean, it's almost, it's sort of the conventional idea, but I feel like it's sort of childish. Like, we are adults and we should be we should look at this with nuance and sophistication. So um, I'm gonna be honest right now, I don't know I don't know how to get that analyzed. If I in the future, if I can look into that, I'll try to figure out the practical way to figure out your LP little a genetics. If someone uh, knows about that, post in the comments. It would be most helpful if you post in the comments on the show notes when this goes out. Uh, on chrismaster.phd.com the next couple of days because it'll be easier for me and other people to find that way. Um, but I would say you really want to know that before you conclude anything based on your LP little a. Um, now, what you can, your, your other question is, should your LDLC be below 80? I'm not going to tell you it shouldn't be because, um, you know, take what I say and and also take what the more conventional view is and, and try to come to your own conclusion, discuss this with your doctor. It's my opinion that, that first of all, when you're, lo when you're deciding between LDL and HDL and total and all of that stuff, that by far and away the most well-established predictor of heart disease risk is the total to HDL cholesterol ratio. I have a blog post called What is the Total to HDL Cholesterol Ratio? What is its meaning? I will post a link to that in the show notes. Um, I think if you even just, if you just Google that with my name, it should come up on top. Uh, in brief, I think that, 
Uh, you do not want to necessarily be managing the markers. You want to be using them to try to understand what is the physiology in this particular person that's underlying them. But in general, I think the closer your total to HDL cholesterol ratio is to three, the less you have to worry about. The, if you are uh, a male, for a male, I would say your total, to, your total cholesterol, if it's grossly in excess of uh, 220, that would concern me. If it's substantially higher than three, that would concern me. The further away from those numbers it gets, the more I would be concerned. When those two things are combined, the more I would be concerned. But if those are the case, the first things I would look at are full thyroid panel, dietary and lifestyle analysis to see whether chronic carbohydrate constriction or, um, or symptoms of high stress hormones or dietary patterns associated with high stress hormones or dietary or symptoms associated with low thyroid symptoms. I would look at that in general to look at, uh, to look at thyroid related symptoms. Um, I, I would look at, I would look at that and I would, depending on the numbers, I would maybe look into the possibility of familial hypercholesterolemia. Definitely not because it's your LDL is 85. I'm talking about if it's grossly in excess of the numbers that I was talking about, the higher and higher it is, the more likely, the more likely that a rare condition uh, that is a, a rare genetic condition could be behind it. Um, but I would say I would say general uh, thyroid activity are the number one things that you want to look at, and in the general population, the big driver of that, in my opinion, is going to be overweight and obesity. So if your body, you definitely want to manage your body composition is one of the number one things there. Um, I talked about these much more extensively in the Ask Me Anything About Heart Disease episode, so I'm going to leave it at that and move on. Thank you, Eric, for your question. Laura Parkin says, any thoughts on oral allergy syndrome, cross reactions to pollens that cause itchy throat? Is it something that can be overcome? Are those cross reactive foods to be avoided forever or is there, a or is there ever a possibility of in reintroducing them? Thanks. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to this and I'm going to say that there's a wealth of conventional information that you can get on this if you just Google it. So I'm not going to repeat what's on Google. But I will say that I think that the underappreciated thing with allergies is, I think is vitamin A intake. Uh, I, I have written a little bit about this in the past, although I think the only place that I ever went into detail on it was my article on vitamin, vitamin D and infant safety. And so like, no wonder someone wouldn't find that if they're looking for information about allergies. They'll have to do something about that. But basically, vitamin A is controlling many different aspects of the allergic response. And I think this is more well do documented in terms of airway aller allergic responses. But I think it probably is the case for all allergic responses because some of what it's doing is just general to the immune system. And I will say that for pollen allergies, they used to be terrible for me and they're not gone, but they definitely dramatically improved when I started eating more organ meats. And so for me, in that case, I, I, that's one of the reasons why I think there's a strong vitamin A connection here. And I will say that also I have, I believe that I have had the 
oral allergy syndrome that you're talking about. I don't know that much about it, but for example, I used to have bananas would make my throat itchy. Uh, nuts would make my throat itchy. Apple skins would make my gums itchy. So, I, you know, I think that I, uh, that I had this and it's mostly gone now. And I, I don't really, to be honest, I don't know what contributed to that, but I really do think it's a matter of working organ meats into the diet and getting a lot more nutrient density. I really think people are running, I don't think, you know, people are not running around vitamin A deficient, but they're running around with really mediocre nutrient status in general. And I think, I think that is the one thing that's really underappreciated here. Uh, you know, just Google it and you can find all the things that aren't underappreciated about how to, you know, how to manage this in a complex way by taking things out of your diet or probably trying to desensitize yourself and stuff like that. Um, my contribution is focus on the nutrient density. And if you're not eating liver, uh, try eating a lot of liver for a little while and then cut back on it and see if it helps. All right. Thank you, Laura, for your question. Uh, Laura Davis, not to be confused with Laura Parkins says, as a person recovering from surgery and still dealing with one remaining wound that has to be packed daily, do you think it's a good idea to eat in a way that encourages the good bugs to be stronger than the bad bugs? In other words, to discourage fungal overgrowth, or do you think it's better to eat foods that encourage both populations to thrive? Um, I think I need to reread this to understand it. As someone recovering from surgery... And have and still needing wound healing, so you're trying to promote better wound healing. I take it. Um, should you be trying to? I so I think that you're Laura. I think that you seem to be defining fungus as bad bugs. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think that's true. Uh, yeast are fungi, and yeast are supposed to be part of the microbial ecology. Uh, Candida albicans is supposed to be part of the normal ecology. It probably plays a role when it gets out of hand. It's morphing into uh, unusual forms that are much more aggressive and it's sort of losing its place. But also Saccharomyces boulardii is a really important yeast in the intestines. And I will tell you for my, all of my symptoms that relate to my gut, it seems to be the pres if I experiment with probiotics, it seems to be the simultaneous presence of some spectrum of bacteria plus Saccharomyces boulardii. And probiotics that don't have Saccharomyces boulardii don't work for me. And probiotics that only have Saccharomyces boulardii and don't have any bacteria in them work for me, but don't seem to work as well as that combination. So as an example, uh, one of the responses that relates to my gut is eczema. I had eczema so bad uh, some decade ago, it ran from my fingers to my shoulders on both arms. It ran all down the left side of my torso and it ran all across the tops of my thighs. And I tried a bunch of different things that I found on the internet for a year and nothing worked. And this was when I was starting to work out. And when I would work out, it would, everything would become much worse and get really gross. And it was, it was really bad. And I, started supplementing with primal defense in its early days made by garden of life and within a couple of weeks it was 80 percent gone and within a couple of months it was totally gone and now it comes back every once in a while but it just mostly it just I'm, and i'm gonna do a podcast just devoted to eczema it's been on my list 
Um, but for the most part, it just comes back like a tiny bit comes up on my finger or something and then it goes away. It's never, ever, ever returned to what it was before. And so, and you know, this isn't a case of wound healing, but, I, but I'm just using an anecdote to illustrate the principle here that the key factor that I needed to normalize my gut integrity and thereby normalize my skin integrity was a yeast. So I really disagree that yeast should be looked at as bad and bacteria is good. I will tell another story. I think this idea that that bacteria is bad and, and yeast is, or excuse me, bacteria is good and yeast is bad is, um, it, it's it's pretty off and, it, and I, I harmed myself with this idea. So I'll tell you this little story. I, uh, I had gotten bit by a tick and I was living in Connecticut and they had a policy where they will give you one large dose of uh, doxycycline yeah, doxycycline to, because they found that over time when they started doing this preemptively, uh, the incidence of Lyme disease went down by 75%. And I was like, okay, uh, fungal overgrowth sounds less bad than Lyme disease. So what the hell? And, uh, and so I, I took it. I actually, for whatever reason, I felt utterly fantastic that night when I took the doxycycline. I don't, I don't know what it did, but I convinced the doctor to give me an equivalent dose of antifungal medication and because I was scared that the antibiotic would knock out all my good bacteria and cause a fungal overgrowth. So after this great night of riding on this doxycycline wave, the next day I took the Diflucan that they gave me. It was it was advertised as strong enough to, in one single pill, totally knock out a vaginal yeast infection. Needless to say, of course, I didn't have a vaginal yeast infection, so maybe I shouldn't have been taking this because it was this was sort of off-label. But I think the doctor was like, whatever, this dude's in grad school, I'm not going to argue with him. And uh, I took that, and for a week, I felt like I had a combination of a really, like a bad flu really bad allergies and an endocrine disorder. Like that was the worst, one of the worst weeks of my life. And, you know, I've taken microbiology. So it wasn't that's, you know, in retrospect, it, it seems sensible to me. Um, you know, one of the things you would learn in a microbiology class is, is it's a lot easier to make things that kill bacteria and don't hurt humans, at least directly, because bacteria cellular machinery, machinery is totally different from ours. Fungi's cellular machinery is the same as ours. So if you poison a fungus with anything, I don't care whether it's oil of oregano or diflucan, to the extent that's reaching your own cells, it's doing just as bad harm to your cells as it is the fungus. So, um, and I will say also, I for probably, I think that I, you know, I used to, I, I used to always have no problem drinking wine and feeling really good. And I when I was dealing with some of these gut issues, I think what was a mistake was to take long-term high-dose oil of oregano. I think I really screwed up my liver doing that because after I, after I did that, even small amounts of anything with alcohol would make me feel terrible. And I had to, I had to go without any alcohol for, for like a few years before I felt like drinking a glass of wine improved my mood and made me feel better again. So I, you know, I think that the, I think some of this gut understanding is out of hand. The anti, the antifungal understanding is out of hand. 
Um, the, the paranoia about antibiotics is out of hand. I mean, a lot of the, like, it's definitely the case that the microbiota is really important. Taking a lot of antibiotics can harm the microbiota, but I would say, you know, I would even say in the research out there, you know, there's a lot of research that ties antibiotic use to the risk of certain diseases. I mean, hello, who uses antibiotics? The people who have infections. So, right, so... Um, so, I mean, obviously there are numerous things that precede the use of antibiotics that are probably hurt people's health. Among them is, why did you get the infection? Because your immune system was not as good as someone else's. And why was that the case? Because there's probably all this underlying physiology that that is making that person, you know, more sickly. And then, uh, and then also, they got the infection, right? So if you took antibiotics 10 times for an intestinal infection, you had 10 intestinal infections, right? What kind of harm is that doing to your gut? So I, I, I don't, uh, trust me here, I'm not saying that the microbiota is not important. I'm not saying that the microbiome research isn't awesome, but I'm saying that I think we really jump the gun here. Uh, the, the, you know, the natural microbiota biota is pretty resilient and, um, you know, in these cases, I think that, and I realize I'm going way peripheral from your question, Laura, but uh, I will come back to it. And I think this is important. I think that, um, I do think you want to, uh, you, in general, we want to avoid the need for antibiotics. And in general, if we don't need antibiotics, we don't want to take antibiotics. But I don't think we should be so paranoid about antibiotics that we refuse to take them when there is an obvious risk of the actual infection that outweighs the hypothetical risk of disturbing the microbiota. And I don't think that we should be so paranoid about disturbing the balance of bacteria and, and fungi that we do things like what I did, which is <laughs> take the antifungal medication to balance out the... I think we should be more conservative about natural antifungals than we should be about antibiotics because of the reason that I said before. There's no such thing as an antifungal medication that's not toxic to a human. It does not exist. So again, that's not to say that we shouldn't use antifungals. What I'm saying is we should be very conservative about using them. And just because they're natural doesn't mean that they don't have the same side effect profile as the ones that aren't natural. So I think we should be conservative about antifungals. We should be conservative about antibiotic use, but we shouldn't be paranoid about antibiotic use. And our primary strategy for supporting the microbiota should, for most people as a prophylactic, be to eat a wide variety and large amount of unrefined plant foods that have soluble prebiotic fibers that nourish the gut microbiome. And I think that that, that one thing right there vastly outweighs, um, vastly outweighs the risk of taking, say, one run of antibiotics when you have a compelling reason to do so. Um, to tie this back to your specific question about wound healing, I don't really know that the microbiome is going to be the number one thing that's going to impact your wound healing rate. But I would say you you want to, if your concern is supporting the microbiota, you know, the step number one is eat things that you digest well 
if you don't have GI distress from them, include a wide variety of unrefined plant foods that contain a large amount of prebiotic fibers. If you get GI distress from that, don't do that. Fix the GI distress as the first priority. And consume some fermented foods that have a wide spectrum of probiotics. If you feel you need additional support, I would use probiotic supplements. I've used them before. I have nothing against them. I think it's a highly individual case, but I would err on the side of using supplements that contain beneficial yeasts as well as beneficial bacteria. My experience leads me to believe, and there is literature on this, and there's literature, in fact, showing that Saccharomyces boulardii helps, um, even without other bacteria, helps promote good bacteria in the intestines. But my, my general experience is that a mix of a wide mix of, like, as an example, I could pair Florastore and Prescriptacyst and get a good response from that. Um, but Prescriptacyst, unless they changed it, when I was taking it, I don't think it had Saccharomyces boulardii in it, and I didn't seem to get that response from it. Uh, Primal Defense got changed its formula. Primal Defense Ultra has Saccharomyces boulardii, and regular Primal Defense doesn't. Regular Primal Defense doesn't do anything for me. So I, you know, I don't think my situation necessarily translates into yours, Laura, but I do think that the, like the number one baseline is nourish the yeast and bacteria together. If you have specific targeted reasons to deviate from that, then you need to listen to your body's response and, you know, what to the extent anything is measurable, follow with the data on what's measurable and do what works specifically for you. I would, but in wound healing, in my personal opinion, um, absolute number one thing is sleep a lot, rest a lot, and m manage your stress much more effectively than you usually do. Number two is eat a really nutrient-dense diet. Don't restrict your calories. And then everything, and then, you know, the gut microbiome is in that list. But the, to me, those are the top two for wound healing. Thank you, Laura, for your question. Laurent? I tried, <laughs> says, yes, so much appreciation for what you put out there. You also seem like a nice dude. Thank you. You seem nice too. Question now, could the, could you comment on the importance of testing for GI health or imbalance and disease situation? Particularly, how do you feel about the newer tests like Genova GI effects, diagnostic solution, or biohealth pathogen screen that looks at everything from inflammation markers, fat absorption, parasitic infections, and gut bacteria? Are they worth the price and reliable? Are they? Uh, you know, honestly, that's a fantastic question and I I'm not really the best person to answer it and I'll I'll plug Chris Kresser here I have a lot of respect for Chris Kresser's opinion and this is something where when I have time it's something that I would want to understand on my own and it's something when I'm in a pinch I would see what Chris Kresser says so I'm inclined to say see what Chris Kresser says I will say in general for in terms of the companies that try to measure a million things at once, I really like Genova, but Genova measures a million things and 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 they do a great job, you know, so like not being cheap about it. And in general, if you're going to compare, for example, a Genova ion test to a Spectracell test, I think that I believe Genova is more expensive, but it's also there's a lot more information in it that you can interpret it that you can interpret and there's a lot less information that it's like who knows what it means uh but 
when things are really expensive, uh, you know, either find someone who knows how to get your insurance to pay for it if you have insurance and if your insurance doesn't cover it and it's a cost-benefit analysis. I realize, you know, if you're thinking about society, you want to lower the burden of healthcare costs, you cannot get it for that reason. But on an individual level, um, you know, if it's something that you're going to pay hundreds of dollars for, I would say everything is a waste of money if it is that much money I mean, unless you're just bur- like burning, like if you light money, you know, you roll up uh, Benjamins and light them and smoke them like cigars. If that's your case, then, you know, blow them whatever you want. But for people who have the, who people who have the any remote kind of budget where where it is meaningful to them, their monetary flow, I think everything that costs three hundred dollars is a total waste of money. If you don't first have a specific reason to get it, it makes no sense for someone who is healthy to be dropping thousands of dollars every year on any kind of healthcare maintenance cost for diagnostic testing like this. Because what are you trying to diagnose? It makes total sense to invest in things you know are preventative. Like it makes total sense to invest in your fitness program and in good food. It doesn't make sense to, to in the total absence of GI problems say well I just feel like knowing what gut microbes I have so I'm gonna I'm gonna dump three four five hundred dollars on all these tests that makes sense when you have something that simple quick fixes can't fix and you know at that point that's when you say it's worth it to get this test it's worth it to, but you know it's only worth it to get that test if you can get someone who can interpret it. So, you know, it's worth it to get that test if you are, if you really trust the person that you're bringing the data to who can help you understand what's in it. And that's um, totally an individual variable. For reliability, I can't answer that directly, but if Chris Crester has written about it, I would, um, he's the first person that I would go to if I didn't have the time to look into it myself. So I feel comfortable saying uh, if he's got something written on it out there, it would be valuable to read. Thank you, Laurent, for your question. Rebecca says, my husband has been low-carb, high-fat for over seven years, normal cholesterol, active, 70 years old, suddenly massive heart attack. He did eat very bad for before going low-carb, high-fat, and smoked for 40 years, quitting 10 years ago. We thought getting healthy would heal him and prevent heart disease. Was it too little, too late? I, You know, I don't know, Rebecca. And I think that... Um, I think that, you know, the most important thing is that when you're looking back on this, you got to do it from a place that isn't a, isn't a place of guilt. So I would, I would say that number, number one, um, you did what you could and, and, and now, you know, moving forward, the question is how can we understand this better and, and move forward, um, in the best way possible. And on that note, I would say that, um, I would say that's, smoke quitting smoking was a really good idea and not eating a really bad diet was a really good idea do i think that a low carb high fat diet is going to be the best diet to prevent against heart disease no um it you i mean you said that he has normal cholesterol i don't know what that means but it would appear that whatever was contributing to his heart attack was not directly related to Uh, blood lipid levels. So the question then becomes, well, what was it related to? And, 
you know, one of the ways that you can interpret this is that the atherosclerosis was already there. And yes, it's reversible when the conditions are right. Maybe it wasn't reversing. Maybe it was reversing too slowly. But I don't think a low-carb, high-fat diet is going to be, I mean, regardless of cholesterol levels, I don't think that's going to be the thing that's going to reverse it. I think nutrient density would help reverse it. I think it's possible that in the context of a low-carb, high-fat diet, if you support nutrient density enough, that might reverse it. But if the low-carb, high-fat diet is nutrient dense and it's not sufficiently reversing it, I I would say that it may be the case that you want to try to maintain the, the nutrient density and replace some of the fat with carbohydrate. There are a lot of systems that I would expect to protect against heart disease that have some dependence on carbohydrate itself. I'm not saying that a low-carb, high-fat diet is inconsistent with protection against heart disease. I'm just saying that moving forward, it it should be something that you reevaluate. I would say, you know, the more data that you have about why this happened, the better. So if you have ultrasound data and you have coronary calcium score data, you can start to understand what the nature is of the plaques. Are they calcified? Are they lipid rich? Are they collagen poor? A There are different reasons to have a heart attack. Generally speaking, the standard reason for a heart attack, the common one, is that a plaque ruptures and, the th- and causes a clot that blocks a coronary artery to the heart. The thing that makes the plaque rupture, primary drivers are lots of oxidized lipid, poor collagen status of the plaque, and calcification in the fibrous plaque that makes it fragile. So uh, things that support collagen synthesis are resolving any chronic inflammation. I have a lot more to say about that in the future. Vitamin C, copper um, would be the top, probably the top nutrients for collagen synthesis, also glycine from skin and bones. And the fat-soluble vitamins would be really important for protecting against the calcification. I would list those at the top, and I would say they overwhelmingly are more important than the macronutrient ratio. But when you talk about macronutrient ratio, carbohydrate is going to support the antioxidant system via insulin, and it's going to support robust metabolism of LDL particles, which protects them against oxidation via insulin signaling. And so in that case, I think one of the tools in your kit should be carbohydrate intake. Um, I'm going to leave it at that because I've said a lot about this in asking me anything about heart disease and also in managing heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. He may not have heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, but I think that if anyone who's trying to manage heart disease would do well to listen to that episode and see if there are principles there that could be used. And of course, to be clear here, uh, all of this should be managed with a healthcare professional and what I'm providing here is educational in nature and we're not actually uh, treating anyone on Facebook Live. All right. Thank you, Rebecca, for your excellent question. Jesse says, how problematic is deep frying with coconut oil, say at temps of about 300 degrees? Does this make coconut oil unhealthy? I don't... Th- you know, deep frying does not make anything healthier. I think... Um, honestly, that's sort of, I think that's a really basic no-brainer to me. Um, I'm not against deep frying, 
But I think that it doesn't matter what oils you're using. Deep frying foods should not be the main, it should not be a staple in the diet. I think if you're eating deep fried foods every day, you need to rethink your food choices because there's no way that any oil is going to make that amount of heat damage totally risk-free and not impair the health value of that food. Fried food tastes good. I have no problem with eating fried food. When you do eat fried food, I would recommend using an oil that's pretty stable. I think coconut oil, if it is refined coconut oil, it's probably better stable at those higher temperatures. I think virgin coconut oil is going to probably is going to smoke at any at any effective uh, deep frying temperature. So I would, I mean, probably for deep frying, I think your best bets are going to be lard and tallow. I would get them from high quality sources. I would focus on taste. You know, if at the end of the day, you should be eating fried food because it tastes good. You should not be eating deep fried food because of health concerns. And so it's a health concern that your food should taste good and should enjoy it. I'm all for that. But when you're eating the fried food, um, the number one priority should be, this is cheat day. I want to make this taste really good. And that should trump any particular minutia about whether there's a little bit more or a little bit less oxidation products in one thing versus another. For most applications, I'm going to say that animal fats are going to taste better for deep frying. Lard and tallow are probably going to be your best bets. So I would I would go with those. If you really like the taste of coconut oil, I think that's fine. It's, it's probably going to be more stable if it's refined. I'm not saying don't eat virgin coconut oil. I'm saying your fried foods are your fun foods and virgin coconut oil is not the best thing in that particular case, in my opinion. Thank you, Jesse, for your question. Gwendolyn says, this keeps me awake at night. This Facebook Live? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, or, or maybe you mean what follows your question. This was from 1998. Ascorbic acid synthesis, synthetic vitamin C may damage DNA. The British researchers, chemical pathologists at the University of Leicester found in a six-week study of 30 healthy men and women that a daily 500 milligram supplement of vitamin C had a pro-oxidant as well as antioxidant effect on the genetic material DNA. The researchers found that at the 500 milligram level, vitamin C promoted genetic damage by free radicals to a part of the DNA, the adenine bases that had not previously been measured in studies of the vitamin's oxidative properties. Um, I see, Gwendolyn, that you don't have a question. Um, I will respond very briefly that thank you for providing that study. I have not read that study, so I can't comment directly on it. I would note that, as I said before, most people should be aiming to increase the vitamin C content by eating more vitamin C-rich foods. There are a million and one reasons to do that that have nothing to do with vitamin C, and it doesn't make any sense to try to micromanage your nutrients. Um, you're, it's much more robust to human error to eat a wide spectrum of nutritious foods. I will say that I really doubt... Um, I, you know, I, if, the, if all they did in this, and this was back in 1998, so I question how much they knew that was relevant at that time. 
But my, you know, one of the things that I would want to look at in that study was what happened to iron absorption because vitamin C is going to enhance the absorption of iron from plant foods. And uh, if those, it's pretty widely distributed. It's not the majority, but in a lot of people, iron absorption is not very regulated as well as it should be in our society. And I am one of those people that accumulate excess iron. So I would want to know, is that vitamin C enhancing iron there or is it actually a prooxidant effect of vitamin C? I, I'd have to, to be honest, I'd, I'd have to look at it and I'd have to synthesize it with everything else that I know. But I kind of doubt that 500 milligrams of vitamin C per day is going to directly cause oxidant effects. Um, but I would say that um, it's still ill-advised for your means of supporting your antioxidant system to be taking vitamin C supplements. I do take vitamin C supplements when I have a cold. I cannot prove for sure that what I do when I have a cold works, but it seems to. But I, you know, I would say that the the antioxidant system is just far too broad. You know, you're providing vitamin C. Okay, great. What are you doing about vitamin E? What are you doing about polyunsaturated fatty acids? What are you doing about iron to direct iron into the proteins that make it an antioxidant instead of an oxidant? What are you doing about zinc, copper, selenium? What are you doing to support your glutathione status? So many questions arise. Why, you know, why would you take one nutrient in that pathway and just assume that it should have a general antioxidant effect? So I'm skeptical that it actually had a direct prooxidant effect, but I also think that from what we know now, I think it should be considered silly to take one antioxidant and think that what you're doing is supporting antioxidant defense if your whole approach is limited to that one thing and you are doing it totally divorced from any targeted data that would show that you have a singular deficiency in that nutrient that makes supplementation with it a sensible goal for you and that you don't need to support the other aspects of that system. In 1998, I mean, in 2016, I doubt they're going to do it. They, but they, they, we would probably take a little bit more sophisticated approach to that. I mean, these days, people are asking the question. These days, I mean, from 1998, we have moved so, so far out of this. Back in 1998, people thought. I mean, today people still think it, but I mean, people who were in the in depth in the research thought that antioxidant support was balancing oxidants and antioxidants. Everyone still thinks that in the general population, but people who study the science don't think that anymore. Now everyone's talking about how can we better understand when free radicals and thing and reactive oxygen species are good for you, and how can we study. You know, now that what what concerns people is not will vitamin C have a prooxidant effect? It's will vitamin C's antioxidant effect impair the ability to uh, recover from resistance training and things like that? And does it matter whether you're young or old? That's what people are studying now. So um, I think you know if this is keeping you up at night, um, I would just not take 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day. I would eat a lot of vitamin C rich foods. And I would implement a morning and evening pro sleep routine. Uh, I will plug my, what episode was it? I, you know, I want to think that it was episode, was it episode five? I think it was episode five of my podcast, in which case 
it would be uh, it would be Chris John PhD slash uh, Chris John PhD dot com slash five. Let me see if I can bring it up real quick here. Um, I describe my morning and evening routine, and uh, I you know for me. Yeah, that is, it is episode five. ChrisMasterJohnPhD.com slash five will bring you to the episode as well as the show notes. And, um, you know, for me, if I'm reading research at night, I, I won't sleep either. It doesn't matter if it bothers me or not. It's just it's work and I don't sleep when I'm thinking about work. So, I mean, I know you're you. I don't think you were asking about sleep. Um, you were just saying this keeps you up at night. But for anyone who's kept up a night by nutrition, I can relate. So listen to episode five of my podcast, The Daily Lipid. Thank you. Um, thank you, Gwendolyn, for your comment. Daniel says, hi, Chris. I've been looking for a good snack food recently, something relatively healthy, portable, and satiating that will make up the caloric deficit of my diet. Because I don't enjoy eating large meals, my diet is slightly low in calories, and without planned snacks, I find myself eating junk food. Granola and mixed nuts... Granola and mixed nuts seem to fit the bill perfectly, but I've got concerns with each of these options. I'm worried about the phytate content of granola, primarily because my teeth are prone to decay. Uh, when, like you, my diet is suboptimal, I'm worried about mixed nuts because I want to avoid overconsuming omega-6 fatty acids. Assuming 200 calories of these foods daily, how valid are these concerns? Do you have any other snack food suggestions? Um, let's see. For snack foods, I think exobars are really great. And exobars do have nuts in them, but if you compare the nut value in exobars to the you know to granola, there's a lot less nuts. So I'm not going to say that it's not rich in phytates, but I think that it is um, you know the phytate burden is clearly going to be a lot lower, and there are very nutritious things in it that will counterbalance that. There's also a lot of calcium from the insect exoskeletons that counterbalance that. So those are one of my go-to snack foods. Um, I, you know, there are some other things that I kind of rotate, but those are the one; those are the main, my main go-to snack foods. Definitely, you could think of other things like maybe some cheese. I mean, that would have the total opposite impact in terms of PUFA content, in terms of phytate content, and so on. Um, so that would be my suggestion. I'm sure that um, I'm sure that. There are a million and one other snack ideas out there, but that's what I do. Uh, thank you for your question. Tony says, do you have a recommendation for mineral and vitamin testing? I don't have a recommendation in general for one single test that tests everything. In terms of what tries to approach that, one of the ones that I like is Genova Diagnostics Ion Testing, and they also have vitamin they have some vitamin panels. I think in terms of shotgun testing, they seem to be better from among what's out there. But to be honest, I, I, you know, the, most of those things are, you kind of use it as a starting point. Um, there is SpectraCell out there as an initial starting point. Some people go with that because it's cheaper. I think it's, I think there's a lot of uninterpretable data on that. So I don't really like that test. But if you're just looking in general, those are those are some, I would say the nutrient panels and maybe the ion panel for Genova is one of the places that you could start. Uh, but then it comes to kind of identifying 
specific reasons to look at specific nutrients. And then when you, then, then it all becomes highly dependent on what nutrient you're looking at. And we could go on for a long time about that because it's so specific. And in that case, I would take it on a case by case basis and I would be looking at, okay, what's the best marker of this nutrient? Who offers that test? And sometimes you have to just do what you can. So for example, there's no good vitamin K testing out there that I like right now. Uh, I hope it's coming soon. Um, but yeah, as a general question, I would say one of the Genova panels would probably be the best place to start. Thanks, Tony, for your question. Heather Martin says, hi, Chris. Hi, Heather. What is your recommended level of physical activity during preconception and pregnancy for women who eat uh, Weston A. Price diet and regularly engage in high-intensity cardio interval and resistance training? I don't really think that there is such a thing. I mean, I I see people who do CrossFit when they're pregnant and they and they're great with that. And I've also talked to friends who feel like they did too much CrossFit when they were pregnant <laughs> and it really wiped them out. So I, you know, I really think it's a case by case basis. I talked before about imagining a bucket of stress and your stress bucket, you have different stressors that are all different from one another, but to some degree, whether each one will be good or bad for you depends on how full that bucket is. Um, if, you know, if this is the bucket, I'm drawing with my fingers for people who are only listening on the audio, um, then, you know, many things just sort of add up a little bit. Like pregnancy is like, you know, filling up two thirds of the bucket. So, uh, you know, very often things that I would associate with stress are just, you know, someone gives birth and then boom, Hashimoto's or something like that. So I think that, I think what you need to do is you, you always need to be careful to listen to your body when you are exercising, but you need to be three or four times as conscientious about that as when you are pregnant than when you're not. And, you know, same thing as when you're under profound work stress or emotional stress or something like that. But I mean, pregnancy is, is a stress on the body and it's prolonged for nine months and it's followed by lactation. This is incredibly energy intensive. And so not only is it very taxing to the body in general, but exercise creates a caloric deficit if you're not careful to eat enough food and you don't want a caloric deficit when you're pregnant you want a caloric excess so i think that you you want to avoid spontaneous unexplained weight loss you want to avoid purposeful slow weight loss according to what someone who's not pregnant would do you want to pay attention to your stress related markers you want to make sure that your sleep isn't being disturbed that your immunity isn't being disturbed, that your libido isn't being disturbed. And, you know, you may ask for any of those things, is it pregnancy? Is it exercise? I think the more of those uh, symptoms, you know, not being able to sleep through the night, getting up and peeing a lot, the more those symptoms are combined, the more it sort of doesn't really matter whether it's from pregnancy or from exercise, because that means that your stress bucket is getting pretty full. And that means that it doesn't matter. Like considering exercise on its own is not the question. The question is, can you fit it into your stress bucket? And you, you know, you have all these signs that your stress bucket is so full that it doesn't make sense to put much more in it and it becomes more risky to do so. So I really think you need to use that guideline. 
Some people are really interested in testing heart rate variability as a means of testing exercise recovery. I am not an expert on that and I haven't done it on myself, but it looks really interesting to me. So I would check that out, look into it and see if it makes sense. I think a lot of people could save themselves a lot of trouble if they were using that as a more quantitative guide to their workout recovery. If, um, you know, under conditions where they're stressed so they can get more rapid feedback that will allow them to preempt actually developing any of the symptoms that I was talking about. Um, so I would look into that and see if it works for you. I, I do know from what I've heard and read that there is a little bit of difficulty in terms of being able to regularly test it when the room is quiet in the morning and you haven't moved and things like that. So I would look into that and see if it sounds something that's feasible for you. And that might provide you some actual quantitative data that can help you make that decision. Thank you, Heather, for your question. Uh, let's take one more question. Marie says, as a person with multiple sclerosis who's been symptom-free in paleo plus butter and rice, I wonder about risk benefits of reintroducing raw dairy on occasion. Thoughts? Thank you. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that much about MS in terms of being an MS expert, but I don't see why you couldn't introduce raw dairy unless you have specific experience of having an immune reaction to that. Obviously, you need to do that, you know, in a properly supervised way. So what, whatever your primary parameters are to measure your progress on this, if there's someone that you usually have who runs tests on you or whatever, you know, take whatever your usual parameters are. And, and I don't see a reason why you couldn't test that, but you should be careful to test it and make sure you're preserving the progress that you're making. Um, that would be my opinion. Thank you. Thank you, Marie, for your question. All right. We're running out of time here. So um, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for everyone who came. If you came in late, don't worry. This will be released as a podcast on the Daily Lipid Podcast. You can find that in your favorite podcast app. It will be episode 19 and it will come out in the next day or two. I hope to also have a transcript when it is released, the show notes with all of the relevant links, as well as a time map to find exactly what you're looking for at different points in the episode in case you want to go back to look for something, but you don't want to re-listen to the entire thing, or in case you missed most of it and you just want to see what's in there. Um, on the show notes, there will be a time map that will guide you to, you know, at three minutes, we talked about this. At five minutes, we talked about this. Uh, all of that will be at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash 19. It is not there yet. Um, it is not there yet on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, July 12th at six, almost 6.30 p.m. Hopefully, it will be there soon. But when it is there, it will be at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash 19. And um, that will be the show notes. But, you know, if you listen to your podcast on your iPhone or your Android or whatever, just search your favorite podcast app for the Daily Lipid. ChrisMasterJohnPhD.com is where you can find the home to all of my content. So that's also where my blog, The Daily Lipid, is. That's where you can find out how to contact me, find out more about me, find out about how to book consultations and so on. I'm also very active on social media. Obviously, I'm on Facebook, but I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Um, you know, pick your, pick your way to follow me. I have a new newsletter that you can follow. Uh, you can also, if you're on my website and you, and if you want to see everything that I put out, you can subscribe to my RSS feed by 
email, you know, I mean, some of you may have RSS feeders and you know how to find me in the RSS feeder, but if you're not tech savvy and you just want emails, um, if you're new to my site and uh, it's the form should pop up when you start to leave the site, when you're on your desktop or in your, when you're on your mobile, it should pop up when you scroll down uh, halfway through an article. And I have it set so that the form will leave you alone after that for a while. So anyway, um, it shouldn't get in your way, but <coughs> if you see the icon that says never miss a post, you can put your email address in there and you can get everything that I ever post on the site will automatically get emailed to you. If you don't want that, don't do it. That's not the only way to follow me. Um, I also have a new newsletter. If you just go to my chrismasterjohnphd.com to the homepage, you can join the newsletter from there. That is not, that's exclusive content that's not on the blog. It starts by explaining more about what I'm trying to do in this stage of my career and with my new website um, and gives a, both in a practical way and in a personal way. So um, there's a, you'll get a few emails over the first week as a welcome series. And then after that, I'll email you. If you're on the newsletter, I'll email you with a very brief email once a week with the key insight that I've had in the week that relates to the kind of content that I put out. And then occasionally I will, you know, if there's something time sensitive, like my Facebook live event is coming up, I'll let you know about that. Or if there's something special that I have going on or that I found out about that's time sensitive, I might also email you about that. But I won't share your email with anyone. And I definitely won't bombard you with, I mean, I like I... Um, I, I know my email box is messy. I'm going to try not to make yours any messier. So there's that. Um, and then, of course, if you want to keep up with these Facebook Live events, there are there are two things that you can do. One, if you're watching this now, there should be a subscribe button. If you subscribe there, it notifies you every time that I'm live. But it doesn't tell you leading up to when I am live. If you're watching this video after the fact and you go to the up the arrow in the upper right corner of the screen should give you a drop down menu that allows you to turn on not notifications. That only tells you I just went live and you get a notification on your phone. If you want to get notified via Facebook leading up to the events, then go to on my Facebook page, go to the events section. I will be posting there when I schedule Facebook live events and if you subscribe to those events, you will always get notified automatically through Facebook when they are coming up. All right. So, um, that is it. Again, chrismasterjohnbhd.com is home to all my content. Thank you to all of you. You guys showing up here is what makes these episodes what they are. Uh, you ask the questions that become the show. That's why this is awesome. I assume that because you're like here, because you're here, you like me, but, um, all the more I have to say that you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. And, uh, that is it for today. Until next time signing off. This is Chris Masterjohn. If you love this podcast, please consider supporting it by subscribing to it, downloading the episodes, and rating it and reviewing it in the iTunes store. If you want more of my content, please visit chrismasterjohnphd.com where you can find my blog and where you can find all of the show notes with links to relevant content and more and more the transcripts of these shows at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast. You can find me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Finally, if you want to see me speak in person, come visit me at the Ancestral Health Symposium in Boulder, Colorado, August 11th through 13th, or at Wise Traditions in Montgomery, Alabama, November 11th through 14th. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next episode.